great morning. We are going to take communion together after the service. When you came in, you should have gotten the elements. Uh, just hold on to those. We'll do it together. If you're a guest with us, we invite you to join us if you're comfortable with that. Uh, hopefully, you'll have, by the time we do it, enough explanation to know whether or not you want to do it. All right? I'll make sure at the end that you get something to help you know whether or not it's something you want to do. Uh, we are in a series that we are calling The Good Life because uh, we believe Jesus is teaching us what it means to be a good person and what it means to be a good life. And this past week, uh, I got to go hear Jordan Peterson in Irving, or actually Los Colinas, with my son Mike. And it was a wonderful evening uh, listening to him. Uh, he's a Canadian clinical psychologist who's also a sort of a cultural intellectual addressing all kinds of issues. You've probably run across him, but not everybody has. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, he alluded to a conversation that he had had recently with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist who's also a, he's being called an American, philosopher, American philosopher and uh, also addresses uh, these big issues. Sam Harris is, of course, sort of a modern atheist and has no use for religion whatsoever. And Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, uh, is not an atheist uh, and even you know, uses the Bible, uh, even though he's probably not a Christian. You wouldn't necessarily call him a Christian, but Christian values and, and, and scripture and stuff like that matter to him. So to, to hear them interact is pretty good. Anyway, I listened to two hours uh, of, a, of their conversation uh, yesterday. And uh, this was the first two minutes. And I want you to, uh, want you to hear it. Um, but, you know, the topics we were touching, questions of of you know what is reality and how we should live within it really you know i mean the fundamental questions of of you know what it means to live a good life what are the requisites for living a good life uh how should we think about our place in the universe so as to have the best chance of living a good life um these are the most important questions anyone ever asks provided they have sufficient freedom to even worry about such things Right. I mean, if the if the wolf is at the door or in the room, well, then people really, for the most part, don't have the luxury of of worrying about whether they're as ethical or as honest or as uh, profoundly engaged with the the, the present moment um, as they might be. But once you get to something like you know first world concerns, where you have enough material abundance, where your you know survival is not a question and when when political stability is sufficient that you're not continually worried that you know your neighbors are going to murder you um then you're then it really i mean then then we you know when you when you, when you wake up at three in the morning and can't get back to sleep you're thinking about what it, what does this all mean and what's you know what is a good life one of the things that we did agree on i think that sort of provided a container for the discussions in total was that there was potentially such a thing as the good life, that that's just not some, mm -hmm. you know, epiphenomenal abstraction or something like that, but something central. And to some degree, I think we disagreed about 
where the information for deriving what might constitute the good life comes from. But it isn't even clear to me exactly where those differences lie. And that was part of, I suppose, the fun of the discussion and something that I also hope to continue today. That's enough. <laughs> they will proceed to go into a two-hour conversation that I did my very, very best to hang on. It was beyond me. I listen because every now and then something will be clear. And I'm so excited when that happens. <laughs> what I wanted you to see is that our top intellectuals on both sides of reality are asking the question, what the heck is the good life? What is it? And who can offer it? And what we're suggesting here is that Jesus is the one who can. Uh, in Matthew 7, or Matthew 5 through 7, we're looking at because one afternoon Jesus gathers a large crowd of people. They're sitting on a hillside. They saw something in him, and they heard something from him that was much different than what they had heard before about the good life. Uh, and about what it means to relate to God, be a good person. Uh, in that day, spirituality had become very much an act, just a performance. You know, who can look the most spiritual? It was actually more important to look spiritual than it was to be spiritual. And Jesus tried to get right to the heart of the matter. That's what Matthew 5 through 7 is about. And for him, it was, he was offering a relationship with God, a direct, personal, intimate relationship with God that's internally transforming, that really changes you. Changes everything about you. It reorients you to all reality because now you have a divine context by which to interpret life. You can ask the good life questions all you want. You can wake up at 3 in the morning wondering what it's all about. But God gives you, Jesus saying, I'm offering you a context by which to interpret that, to figure that out. And it just doesn't reorient you. It grounds you. When you're loved by him and you're in a relationship with him, it grounds you, it frees you from a lot of the things that, uh, well, to stop needing to please people is one of them. Jesus will talk about in this chapter. And also, it'll stop you from stressing over what you don't have. Um, that's what chapter 6 is really trying to do. Uh, Jesus has been saying, I can actually make you a person who loves people beyond what you ever thought you could. Uh, I really can help you stop putting on a spiritual act and give you something real. Uh, you can really relate to God personally. That's what he's saying in chapter 6. You can, you can become dependent on him for those things. So Jesus is telling us what this real relationship looks like. And in chapter 6, as we saw last week, it sort of it sounds like it's the big secret of religion. 
because it's kind of a secret life. It's a hidden life. There's a hidden component to spirituality. We learn that God is hidden. And we connect with him in that hiddenness, in secret. So on one level, he's in heaven and beyond us. He's your father in heaven, and he's beyond us. In another way, he's like right here in the room with us. And uh, in order to sort of tease out that kind of life with God, Jesus sort of centers his thoughts around three basic devotional acts that are in all religions, really. And they are giving and praying and fasting. Uh, now, before we look at the first one, all right, before we look at uh, these, Calvin Miller, one of my favorite writers, says this. Outwardness and inwardness are the poles of spirituality, as north and south are poles of the earth's geography. So outwardness consists of the observable qualities of faith. But he says, so you got outwardness and inwardness, both matter. In Matthew 5.16 said, you're a light, your good deeds should be seen by the world so that they can discover who God is. But he says, and he's right, outwardness and inwardness, either one can be phony or real, but, and outwardness is as important as inwardness, but outwardness is easily spoiled. It's easily spoiled. And its greatest strength and its greatest weakness are the same thing visible visibility who sees who do i care sees who do i need to see so at least one way because i got to have an outward life there's no way jesus can come into your life and you live a good life and it not be seen the good will be seen but how do I keep it from spoiling comes the question. How do I have a deep, real, inner life, a hidden life, a secret life? Because that's Jesus' primary sort of mechanism to keep you from being dependent on what others see. And this hidden life militates against outward performance and the need for approval from others. Uh, recently, uh, not too long ago, I watched the uh, documentary The Alpinist on uh, Netflix. If, you, if, you, if you're into that sort of crazy climbing, just wild stuff, he's the freak of all freaks. I mean, maybe you say you've seen some freaky stuff, but the freakiest people say he's the freakiest person. And uh, his, na his name is Mark Andre Leclerc. He was about 20-ish, I guess, when this thing was done, because he's not too old at all. Uh, 
But he's one of these guys who, uh, you know, if you've seen free, you know, free, solo, uh, free Solo and all that kind of stuff, they climb rock. He climbs ice Free Solo and, and does some of the most uh, remarkable kinds of things. And he was very, very much unknown and stayed unknown. And the reason he stayed unknown is because he just has no interest in anybody watching him. He loves to do what he does. He doesn't need anybody to watch him. So they finally decided somebody needs to capture what this guy's doing. And so they somehow convinced him to let a camera come in every once in a while when he'd climb. And they orchestrated this, you know, crew and camera crew to do it. And it was really difficult for him because he, he just didn't want the attention. He just didn't want the attention. He loved to climb. And so... Uh, if you go to, uh, if you Google him, this is what it'll say about him. He climbs alone, far from the limelight. And they'd be filming, and they'd wake up the next morning to do a big film after they'd done a little bit the day before, and he wouldn't be there. He'd just be gone for days. You say, where'd he go? He went to climb somewhere. He didn't want anybody to watch him. So here's a guy that they're trying to force in front of the camera, but he just loves to climb so much he doesn't need to be in front of the camera. He has no need for it whatsoever. And he would just do these disappearing acts, and this poor crew sitting around going, we don't even know when he's going to come back because we literally, there's no human being that knows where he went. And he went off to climb somewhere. And it's a beautiful thing, and I thought believers have to have a real disappearing act in their relationship with God. Where they're like, well, where is he? Where is she? Nobody knows. With God somewhere. Jesus did that a lot when he was here. Where is he? Just disappeared. And so one, one scholar said, Jesus restores lost modesty to piety by directing it to the place of concealment. You got to get away and you got to hide. So let's look at the first invisible act of devotion that Jesus will describe to help us figure out how to have an inner life like this. All right. And uh, let's see. Um, where are we going to go here? So he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We address that. And so now he's going to say, so when you give, and it's probably, it's almsgiving. It says when you, alms, when, when you do your almsgiving. It doesn't really say to the needy, although it would be included in alms, but alms can be very broad. So it really just says when you give. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets because they want to be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, uh, they have received their reward. So the first illustration Jesus uses is about giving. And again, spirituality had been so sort of spoiled uh, so that people were actually taking this thing that should have a really private dynamic to it and forcing it out on stage for other people to see. How can I take what I'm doing over here and make it visible 
uh, to other people. And so Jesus says, when you give, and the point is, and you'll see, all three of these are assumed to be operating in people's lives. Uh, you're giving. So don't sound a trumpet in the synagogue or the street, you know, the big corporate gatherings and then, and then the, in the alleys where you give. Somehow, somebody's got to know that I've done this, you know, great act. Whether it's in public, you know, in a big group setting, or whether it's, you know, some, something in a, you know, only involved a couple of people. Don't draw attention to it. Now, this is kind of an exaggeration, and... Uh, because there's no real record that anybody blew a trumpet when people gave. Now, there, there is some record that the Pharisees loved to sort of be known. And so any way they could get recognition, they'd get it. And a trumpet is a, you know, an, it's hard to miss kind of sound, you know. Uh, and so uh, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, as we saw last week. But it reveals a tendency in the human heart. Uh, Sometimes we would rent musicians if we could, just so that people knew what we did. It's sometimes we seek and maybe even arrange for acknowledgement. Uh, this is... This is a real thing. You'll find it in yourself. And I'm sure everyone in here will say, yeah, that's, I know that urge. Um, have you ever had somebody get credit for something you did? Ah, then you'll know. How quick are you to make sure it gets clarified? Uh, because people should know. I mean, what's, what is better than giving a great gift? That people know you gave it. At least that's what religion says. Somehow it would validate it in some way. Well, you need to know, and Jesus is trying to tell you, it's not true. It doesn't have to be validated. Nobody has to see it. And it's absolutely okay if somebody else gets credit for it. It's irrelevant. In fact, you know, uh, here's an incredible thing Jesus says here. Truly I say to you, they have, they have received their reward. This verb is, it's a commercial term. And the idea is, uh, it's a receipt. You've received a receipt for what you did. Uh, which means that what you gave was a purchase when you seek acknowledgement and attention. Uh, so you get a receipt. 
In other words, like the end of a transaction. That's how Jesus views it. It's the end of a transaction, and it really is. Jesus is trying to say the sale is complete. You will get nothing else. The sale is complete. If you got acknowledgement for it, and that's what you wanted, if that's what you wanted, then that's your receipt, and that's what you're getting. The sale is complete. Uh, uh, Plummer writes this. They received their pay then and there. And they receive it in full. God owes them nothing. They were not giving, they were buying. They wanted the praise of men, they paid for it, and they've got it. The transaction is ended, and they can claim nothing more. That is the idea. And the implication is you could have gotten so much more for the purchase than what you got. And we have to explore that. What else was there to get? Whatever that reward is, we'll see in a moment. At least we'll contemplate it. So then what should your giving look like if it doesn't look like that? When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Uh, So, left-handed people are really in trouble in this text. (laughs) And I love it because the Bible has no no use for left-handed people. It literally has no use for them. You know, the, culturally, the right hand was, you know, the picture of everything, and that's what they said. So it says it's always your right eye or your, your right hand. Uh, I don't think there's a right leg thing going on in the New Testament. I haven't seen that. Uh, or even right brain, okay? But the right side always signified action. And so, you know, the left-handed one just, you know, doesn't do much. I mean, if you know left-handed people, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you know I'm just kidding? Don't email me. You know I'm kidding about the whole left and right hand thing? Uh, so, you know, when you try to explore this and you read about it and you don't want to try to, you know, over-exaggerate what Jesus is trying to say, but it is an exaggeration of sort, just like the trumpet. The trumpet is sort of an exaggeration to communicate our dependence on external. This is sort of the, uh, I mean, how do you not let your one side of your body know what your, the other side of your body did? It's an exaggeration of sorts to communicate the kind of secrecy Jesus is pressing for. I'm not just saying don't blow the trumpet. I'm talking about not even congratulating yourself you know, where the gift's in one hand and you're clapping in the other one. <laughs> Look at that. This is the picture. Uh, so it's, a, it's an extreme way to say don't congratulate yourself. Now, I was trying to think about uh, what do the extremes try to say to the giver? What are they trying to say to the giver? Um, and so I put this up here. Well, they sort of send a message that Jesus is trying to get across throughout this entire sermon, 
which the trumpet sort of uh, uh, pictures this external life, and this one-handed giving sort of represents this, this heartfelt life. It's like you're the alpinist. You, you give because it's in your blood. You give because there's something different in your heart to the point where this whole image is just defining a sort of inward reality. If this describes sort of the extreme people finding out, this is, I'm not even congratulating myself kind of a thing. And it's, the reason is, it's because it's just in, it's just in the heart to do it. Uh, now, this is really important because Jesus is, is using these two extremes to try to show you the difference between a person who's in the kingdom and a person who isn't. We say, who's living the good life? It is not this person, even though they might be doing something good. What Jesus is distinguishing here is something quite important. The real good life is a changed heart. You don't just do a generous act to receive something. There's basically no other hand to give you anything. <laughs> this is the kind of person that Jesus creates. This is the kind of person that people in the kingdom become. When God reigns over you, you need attention less, and your heart just naturally becomes giving just naturally. You actually become not only a generous person, but a person who doesn't need attention for it. Why? Because of that secret life. Because of this in secret. Because that's where your father is. That's what we've said. That's where, that's where your father is. That's where the essence of the relationship really is. That's where the heart of the whole thing is. This hidden generous life. Listen, there will be times I've, I'm, a, I'm a part of a ministry that people give to and I, and, and, and I give. Well, can't always keep your giving completely secret. Almost certainly, at least one or two people have to know. There will be uh, times when it will be known for whatever reason. And it's not the end of the world if people find out. The real problem is if that's what you wanted then that's what you bought, then your gift wasn't even a gift, it was really a purchase. So what Jesus is getting at here is this is, a, this is a private matter between you and your father and it doesn't have to be flaunted. It doesn't have to be flaunted. Um, 
there was this, this sense that God and I are conspiring. I like that word. We're just conspiring on where resources need to go. Like this is the meeting with your CFO. Like where do we need to put these resources? What do we have and where do we need to put them? Like do you have that dynamic in your life? That private secret meeting with God about where, where your resources need to go? Uh, where you realize, hey, we're partnering to make a difference somewhere. It's important to know, and givers know this, and it's all that's important to them, is that we have conspired and partnered together to make something happen. And the most important thing is that that money gets to where it's got to go so, so it can happen. And that's sort of the dynamic. I don't know. I, that's, a, that's very appealing to me. Does a meeting with God about where your resources go sound a lot better than just be giving? It's in meetings like that where you realize this is how God advances the kingdom. He'll use our stuff to do it. And then you have this Incredible line, God sees in secret. Now we got to grab this hillside. This is what this is what we have to get. Because he's there, it means he's interested in in our resources. He's attracted to that inner part of you. He doesn't. Just he doesn't just observe. The fact that he sees doesn't mean that he just happens to notice. He's there to actively move in your heart. I mean, he he's a participant with you. He wants to partner with you in that. God knows if the heart is right and genuine and changed. And I will tell you that the reason many of us do not have a private inner life that is healthy, that is robust, that is very personal, that is truly life-altering is because, uh, because of this very fact he sees we're not sure we want to show them. Like, how comfortable would you be having a meeting with God if, if he was the CFO right now? Calvin Miller said, we shrink to cross the threshold to ourselves. You know, we have this, you have giving, you have praying, we're going to see, and you have fasting. And what God's going to address in these three little simple activities is he's going to address your, your money. In prayer, he's going to address your priorities and your productivity. 
We'll see that when we look at prayer. And then, food. Anybody in here, these things don't drive you nuts? These things drive me nuts. Jesus wants private meetings with you to deal with them because they all have implications for the kind of kingdom person you are and what God can do through you for the kingdom. God is perfectly content, as we're going to see, as the In chapter 6, the kingdom is going to unfold. And as the kingdom unfolds, you start to realize, I'm a big player in this thing. He needs me. He uses me. He wants me to be a part of this. And so these little, this inner life helps me deal with these things so that the kingdom can expand. Well, if you don't have a, a, a deep enough sort of inner private life with God where he's dealing with these issues with you. You you just... Well, maybe maybe it's just better to say, what are you doing? What is it? So this is important. Uh, This morning, this thought, secret, in secret, is hidden. It's supposed to be hidden from people's eyes, but it's not hiding. That's really important. In other words, I go to that secret place. I cross, as Miller says, you cross the threshold into this inner private life so that you can meet with God, not because you're hiding, but because you're hiding from the outside world, but to him, you're opening up. You're saying, show me where I'm Scrooge-like. Without that, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the right way anyway. I mean, you could feel very generous right now, and I very, I very much remember, but if you get in a private meeting with him, you might go, eh, maybe not so much. And see, that's what you need. That's what we all need. And so when I get into that time with God, I'm not hiding. I'm totally opening up to him. And if you don't get there, then he doesn't get a chance for that push and pull. And I'll tell you the push and pull I'm talking about. On the one hand, I realize God's eyes are very penetrating and holy, fiery, purifying. They will see what is not pure. But on the other hand, they're very loving. He's a father, and he has this way of loving me and exposing me in a way that makes me want to be what I ought to be. And if you don't know that push and pull, then then your inner life just really isn't being developed, and your intimacy with God certainly isn't being developed. Developed. Uh, this is how God advances the kingdom. And so here's the thing. Here's essentially the underlying, which I think is just very profound. If you're fighting the way God transforms the human heart, 
because you're avoiding the deep inner life, well, then you can't expect to get what God's offering. And that's the point of this. How come I don't get it, feel it, hear it, want it? It's because there may not be a depth to the inner dynamic of your relationship with God. And somehow you're wanting the things God gives you, but you don't want time with him to let him develop the kind of heart that can handle it. And see, those are where the rewards come in. These things, which I've just tried to think about, what could they be? They're things like, well, he increases the capacity you know what happens to your heart? One of the rewards of your heart, like I bet every person in here would like to be more generous than they are. Well, how do you get a, how do you, how do you, how do you get a heart that enlarges its time with him? So one of the rewards is that you actually will become more generous when you're confident that he'll take care of you. Um, I think one of the rewards is that he multiplies the use of the gift. Like I was thinking about the receipt and the guy and he's buying something and that's all he gets. And I'm wondering if when he gives something, it doesn't get the, you know, that supernatural blessing to it that God talks about, you know, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9 that it just explodes, you know, you sow one seed, but you get a crop, you know. Maybe you just lose out on the crop. And of course, there are certain little ways, and every, every giver knows that God will sometimes bless you materially. It's not always that, but sometimes he definitely will. That's not why you do it, but it, but it is one of the blessings. Um. But another one of the great rewards, and wouldn't you like this? Tell me if you'd like this. To be less concerned every day about what you don't have. Would you like that? It's one of the benefits. Wouldn't you call that a reward? Remember when C.S. Lewis talked about the reward has to fit the action. And if the action of giving, a natural reward to the giving heart would be less dependence on stuff. You say, I'd like to be less dependent on material things. Well, listen, that's just smart because material things aren't going to last. Jesus is going to make that clear in this chapter. He's going to revisit this topic. you never will if you don't give. It's directly in proportion to the way that you give. Not how much, that's between you and God. The way that you give. So, let me wrap this up before we take communion and say, <laughs> just drive this little simple principle home. Uh, so we live in a culture, by the way, that... This is the first, I think, application. Um, we live in a culture that compels us to put our lives on display. 
um, and it can easily, easily, easily feed this inner desire to be seen and to be known. Uh, it's not spiritual because it goes viral. And according to God, it's spirituality it doesn't have to go viral. And in fact, may need to not go viral. So it may be very wise of the believer because Jesus has taught that heart of yours to be very careful about what people see. It may be very careful that I think wisely about what I put out there and my motive for doing it. And maybe we'd put a lot less crap out there. Uh, I think sometimes in our giving, maybe even Uncle Sam doesn't know we did it. A.B. Bruce said, this is good, good advice. Hide when you're tempted to show. Show when you're tempted to hide. It's pretty good advice. I've been trying to process it. Here's the second thing I would say. What is the quality of your, of your giving life? Uh, is, it, is it healthy? Like, two things I would ask about your heart. I mean, if you don't have a giving heart, it'd be really hard to have a, a meeting with your CFO. Uh, but just ask yourself the question, do I, do I give regularly? Is it a regular part of my life? Um, because we know for a fact, Jesus is going to say, nothing probably gives a clearer reading on the heart than giving. Where your treasure is, Jesus will say, in this chapter, that's where your what? That's where your heart is. And if you do regularly give, do you ever find him nudging you now and then to, to, to do other kinds of giving? You know, where you're conspiring with God? Ask yourself this simple question. When was the last time God grabbed a hold of you and said, I want you to give that? And this is where I want you to give it. You should be doing some secret stuff. Uh, we were out with the Sandifers last uh, Friday night. And uh, I was reminded in a conversation with them about her father, Ben, two years ago, passed away this past December. And um, Gail was able to attend the funeral. It was in Katy, Texas. And uh, about almost 500 people showed up. And it was like one of the largest funerals Gail had ever been to. And one of the things that came out about his life was how generous he was. It just kept, it just kept appearing and surfacing through everybody. And one guy finally got up and just said to the room of almost 500 people, how many of you received some financial blessing from this guy? And my wife said, I don't think only five people didn't stand up. And that place broke out, and none of them knew. And then Dave told me that he's helping the, you know, the family get things in order, helping mom get things in order. And he just said, yeah, you go through his checks. And he loved to write checks. He was this old-fashioned guy. And he just wrote these checks. And he said, most of the checks that went out were giving checks. 
Wow. The secret giver. Uh, have you been the beneficiary of a generous giver, a secret giver? There's nothing like that. Is there? It's just overwhelming. In fact, nothing screams authenticity like, like a secret gift. I know you know that. And I just want to say something to this group right here because as a pastor of this church for 27 years, roughly, I can honestly tell you that I've known a lot of great, generous people, and they're in this room. And you'd never know it. Um, and they've done it without recognition, don't need it. Maybe one of the best things that happens is COVID came around and we don't pass the plate anymore. You don't get that awkward feeling. Do people need to see me put something in here or what? Ever had that feeling? How many of you ever had that feeling when that offering thing came around? You know you did. Well, that's gone. Giving has never been more invisible. I think that's probably a good thing. And I want to say to you who are generous givers, you have, you have been a great motivation in my life. So we're going to take communion. And you take communion because it's the symbol of some real thing. Like, here's the real thing. Like, here's how you know if you ought to take it. Have I encountered the real thing? Has, has what Jesus did for me on a cross, have I received that into my soul in a way that warrants me taking the cup and the bread and putting them in my mouth to say, yes. This is a reflection of some reality. If that's the case, take it. Now, this is a great place to at least begin the assessment of your heart. Because um, you, know, you, know you know what hit me this week about, the, uh, about sitting around the table? Jesus said, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, take and I started thinking about that word take, and I go, you know, we all take pretty well. How well do we give? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Paul putting salvation, the acts of redemption. Though he was rich, for, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is, this is Paul saying, let me put the cross in economic terms. Jesus gave up everything for you. This is in the context, by the way, of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, about how does, how, how's he talking to people about what it means to be givers and be, to be generous. And he says, consider what Jesus did for you. And, and he concludes the whole conversation with, isn't that an incredible gift? You have been given something. Jesus looks at us and says, take. And then Paul says in these two chapters, that ought to motivate you to not just take, but give. In other words, the price, this is what he's saying, the price paid for us should open our hearts and loosen our purse strings. Well, why don't you bow your heads for a second, and then we're going to sing just a chorus. 
and then we're going to take it together. Father, we're alone with you now. We can, in our thoughts, connect with you. We desperately need what you're offering in every way. But when it comes to your death and resurrection, we definitely need. And these elements reflect that you died for us, sacrificed yourself for us, gave it up for us, gave your life for us, and we happily take it. May it change our lives so that we become channels through which what you have given us flows out of us. And we're not just takers. 